This is Peter Dotre, and you're listening to Farming on Mars. Hey guys, this is Sierra Ware, and for this episode, I talked to Dr. Peter Dotre, who's a professor of weed science at Texas Tech. He also holds a joint appointment with Texas A&M AgriLife Research and Extension, where he's the Extension Weed Specialist on the High Plains. After I took his class a couple years ago and worked for him for a summer, he had completely changed the way I viewed herbicides, from something that was kind of a mystery to me to actually making it really fun to spray weeds now because you know exactly how those weeds are going to die. We talked about what first piqued his interest about weed science, the updated dicamba label, and the challenges of controlling weeds on the South Plains. So let's go ahead and jump into this week's episode. So my name is Peter Dotre. I'm a professor at Texas Tech University, also an extension weed specialist for Texas A&M AgriLife Research and Extension Center. Where did you grow up and go to school? So I'm actually a city kid. I grew up in uh, in the heart of Minneapolis, where the Final Four was. <laughs> uh, went to uh, inner city schools. Uh, my grandfather, both of them, lived out in the country. One of them farmed. Uh, had you know livestock, uh, had row crops, and I used to go spend uh, weeks and then months essentially with him in the summertime. Uh, started uh, walking sugar beet fields and then detasseling corn, uh, combining peas for Green Giant, and I think I kind of decided that I wanted some kind of profession outdoors. Uh, I think originally I wanted to be a farmer, and my grandfather, who was a pretty smart man, uh, knowing that there was really no way I could do that, but he encouraged me to go get an education because he thought, or he said, that banks would be much more likely to loan me money if I had an education. So I did pursue an undergraduate degree in agronomy uh, at the University of Minnesota, uh, I think I learned I didn't want to farm, but I wanted to work with farmers. I went to Washington State University and uh, pursued a master's degree there. Worked in a winter wheat uh, production system uh, focused on uh, a genetically related weed to winter wheat called jointed goat grass. And then uh, decided to continue my education, went back to the University of Minnesota worked on a project where we developed herbicide-tolerant corn through tissue culture selection, uh, technology that's actually still available today in, in sweet corn. But at that same time, a couple other herbicides were developed, which had a far greater impact as far as ability to control grassy weeds in corn. Anyway, so that, that happened. Uh, and then first opportunities for employment uh, had a, a few. One was at the University of Nebraska at one of their research and extension centers, and one was here in, in Lubbock, Texas. And this job provided the opportunity to teach, to do research, and also to work as an extension specialist. So I was able to start a position where I really was uh, involved in all three of those aspects. And uh, 25 years later, I'm, I'm still in a very similar role today. What first intrigued you about weed science? So I guess I would I would credit or blame it on uh, a professor 
at the University of Minnesota who taught uh, undergraduate weed science, principles of weed science. And he was very energetic. He was very passionate. Uh, and I found the class uh, very uh, rewarding, very challenging. I, at that time, was working as an undergraduate in a weed control in soybeans project for a USDA scientist, Bob Anderson. And just being exposed to his graduate students uh, and other graduate students that were working in weed science probably was uh, what really sparked my interest and then decided to pursue the master's degree, which was much more on, on plant biology. But, but the Ph.D. involved a lot more of herbicide applications, evaluating plots, and uh, just decided to pursue that as a career. What are some of the things that you do on a day-to-day -day basis? So, I mean, as an extension specialist, I have an opportunity to, to work a lot with growers. Uh, many of the interactions are at multi-county meetings or single-county meetings, uh, where we essentially try to provide some information on, on um, systems approaches to, to manage weeds. Uh, of course, we'll talk about some things from our herbicide trials. But, but from those meetings, there, there's interactions and, and oftentimes uh, ask questions that I don't feel like we have very good answers to, uh, certain weeds and, and certain crops. Uh, so, so oftentimes what we do research-wise stems from questions that growers may ask that I don't feel real comfortable that we have sufficient answers to address what the question is. Uh, I would say the research program that I'm involved in is very applied in nature. Uh, we look at herbicides and, and how they work in different environments and different soil types on, on the different spectrums of weeds that we have. Uh, the focus is certainly cotton, but it's other crops grown in rotation with cotton on the high plains. One of the things that I've learned over the 25 years is the same herbicide on the same weed uh, that interaction may be very different on the high plains as opposed to maybe what somebody is seeing in Mississippi or Georgia or, or elsewhere. Herbicides just simply work different. So sometimes the question may be the same, but the answers may be very different depending on the environment. So a lot of those studies need to be done here because the answer has to be relevant to growers on the high plains. So we'll look at herbicides and, and how they're used in cotton, but again, uh, focuses also on other crops like sorghum, uh, peanuts, uh, corn, sesame, and, and other things that, that we might grow. Um, the focus on the most current crop germplasms as it relates now to herbicide tolerance. We certainly try to focus quite a bit when, when BXN cotton first came out, followed by Roundup Ready cotton. Uh, we were trying to investigate effective weed management systems there. Of course, the most recent technologies are now the auxin-based, where we have opportunities to use two very old active ingredients, dicamba and 2,4-D, uh, newly formulated in, in how they might work in production systems uh, in the year you know, 2018, 2019. So that certainly is a focus as well. What are some of the challenges that farmers on the South Plains specifically face when it comes to weed control? Well, I mean, challenge certainly as it relates to environmental conditions. There, there, there is no other place that I'm aware of that, that is as challenging as it is here. Just, you know, very, very hot, very dry, low relative humidity, uh, very windy. So sometimes just um, application windows are, are very narrow. Um, herbicides tend to work 
uh, on weeds that are more actively growing. So as, as weeds are, are stressed, as they're growing in stressful environments, herbicides are probably going to be less effective. So our growers are faced with some of those uh, challenges as well. You know, we tend to think of weed size as being very important, and it is. But but you could have a, a one or two inch weed that is essentially already uh, growing under very stressful conditions. So that cuticular membrane may be very thick and just more difficult to, for herbicides to penetrate across. So uh, it is a challenging environment uh, just based on the types of weeds that we have and the conditions by which we're, we're trying to make our applications. What are your thoughts on newer herbicide technologies in cotton like 2,4-D and dicamba? And how do you think the updated dicamba label is going to impact farmers? So, I mean, certainly the thought is we, we've got resistant weeds, and I think these new technologies can aid us in controlling those resistant weeds. So specifically, I'm, I'm referring to glyphosate-resistant Palmer amaranth. Um, opportunities to control that particular weed, you know, we have options, but but a lot of things just need to be very much lined up and in place with multiple residual applications. Uh, this new technology, uh, whether it be the ExtendFlex cotton where we can use dicamba or the Enlist cotton where we can use 2,4-D, uh, give us a, a new option to control these resistant weeds in crop since now we've got the cotton that will tolerate one or, or the other of those products. So so from the standpoint of, of aiding in the control of resistant weeds, to me, it's it's a good thing. Now, the challenge is we're talking about active ingredients, uh, auxin-type herbicides that are really like no other herbicides. These are hormone-type herbicides. Hormones, other hormones in plants or hormones in in the human system, they work at extremely low amounts, low concentration, so it doesn't take much. So so any movement off target, we're, we're going to see symptoms of susceptible plants as a result of applying uh, the dicambas are 2,4-D. So that, to me, is is just the, the risk. So so good herbicides from an efficacy standpoint, uh, very unforgiving as it relates to off-target movement. So, so the focus is certainly on how we can best make applications to ensure on-target applications. Uh, manufacturers have done a good job at, at at improving formulations. So we've got products now with a much less ability to volatilize, but, but they didn't eliminate it. We're, we're, we're close to zero, but, but it's not zero. And, and, and in West Texas, when the wind is blowing, the, you know, the physical drift can be extremely challenging. So, so what has happened, is, as you mentioned, uh, EPA extended uh, the labels for the three dicamba formulations for two more years. Now, the 240s weren't up for re-registration, so we still have them as a part of a five-year release. But what EPA is attempting to do is to try to ensure improvements in application uh, technology or, or restrictions to to try to improve uh, on-target application. So one of the things, as you mentioned, was there's a window now, one hour after sunrise to two hours before sunset. And, and, and the reasoning behind that, I believe, is those are the conditions when a temperature inversion is most likely to occur. Now, there was already a restriction on the label that says don't apply during a temperature inversion. This is almost just another restriction that is essentially trying to ensure the same thing. 
that applications aren't made under those conditions. So, so we've got a narrower window during the time of the day, and there's a narrow window where applications can be made over the top from uh, essentially cotton emergence to 60 days after planting. So, so growers are certainly challenged with more restrictions, but those restrictions are in place with the hopes of ensuring on-target applications, which is the short-term goal. The long-term goal is to be able to maintain what I think is a viable technology that will assist us in controlling our most troublesome weeds, including glyphosate-resistant palmer pigweed. Are there any new herbicide active ingredients on the horizon? So the short-term answer is I'm not aware of any new, you know, brand new molecules that will serve as active ingredients to help us control weeds in, in crop. Uh, there, there have been a number of older active ingredients that are being reformulated, they're being remixed, uh, they're being formulated to improve volatility uh, or lessen the concentration so we can use it in, in crop as opposed to it being a non-crop herbicide. But that's really it. As far as new modes and mechanisms of action, I'm, I'm not aware of anything. You know, we, we had the HPPDs and the PPOs that came out, you know, 20 years ago, and that's those are that's still what we're relying on now. Of course, the new auxin technologies. We're talking about herbicides in the 1940s and the 1950s and 60s that we're suddenly using 60 years 60 years later. There is some newer technologies that we're looking at that maybe will be available in about five years. It'll be new in cotton, but these aren't new herbicides or not new. Uh, sites of action. So essentially we we have what we have uh, and, and likely this is what we're going to have for the next 10 years. So, so the key to me is trying to ensure that we're using them in a way where we're being diversified in our inputs. We're not over relying on any one given chemistry because resistant weeds are, are going to happen. They're going to occur if we start using any product as intensely as what we saw with, with glyphosate. Uh, 2,4-D and dicamba, they've been around for so long, we've already got weeds that are resistant to them. They're, they're, they're out there. The key is if we're using those technologies alone, we're going to see them very quickly. If we're using them as a part of a system, then hopefully we can prolong the, the emergence of some of these weeds that, that soon will be popping up in our fields. So short term, we have what we have. Long term, I don't really know. I would expect there'll be uh, continued movement towards transgenics to develop uh, some of our cotton germplasms that might resist uh, a different type of herbicide. Uh, there's certainly opportunities, I think, for improvements in application technologies to do a better job of getting the products from the nozzle to the target. Uh, for quite a while, there's been uh, movements towards trying to identify weeds in a row crop system based on, you know, light reflectance or fingerprinting, which would be based on kind of the imagery and the shape and the size of some of the weeds with the hopes of differentiating weed from crop and, and selectively making some applications. So 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 we're, we're there, but we're not where we need to be. That technology uh, will need to continue to improve before, in my opinion, it has a major impact for use on the high plains. And then, I mean, just the crystal ball, if I could 
try to speculate. I, I'm guessing that new technology that may make a major impact, you know, I don't know, 20, 30, 40 years down the road, we probably have no idea what that looks like. But but it could involve the, the crop plant itself manufacturing uh, some substance which is lethal to other plants that are growing in, in close proximity. Of course, we have herbicides now that w originated from soil microorganisms, and we move genes around, and now those plants are expressing those genes. So I think there's an opportunity now for the plants themselves, the crops uh, I'm referring to, to actually manufacture those molecules that would then be uh, exuded and, and the weeds are exposed, and, and hopefully weed control could be achieved in that manner. Is there any one thing that you think farmers on the South Plains could be doing better when it comes to weed management? Well, I, I think that's a great question, and sometimes I, I feel like I've almost been accused of not being real aware of some of the challenges. I, I feel like we know, we being those in research and, and those that are on farm making applications, know what what needs to occur to achieve season-long weed control. The key is with limited resources within those pool of tools that we can use, which which one or two will be most effective. And unfortunately, that, that's just that's not a simple answer to say that would be pertinent to all growers. It, it's going to be very much, you know, location to location specific. So, I mean, the encouragement of knowing your weeds, being diversified, using residual herbicides, overlaying residuals, uh, I think all of those things are important to mention, and I think growers are well aware that that's what needs to occur. But the question is, if, if we can't provide those four inputs from pre-plant burn down to, to incorporated herbicides prior to planting to at-plant herbicides to early post with residuals and mid-post and laybys, if we can't do all those things because the budget doesn't allow, then what's the first one that should go or what's the second one or or what's the one or two that are most important? So, so to me, that's that really is the focus, and those are the questions that the growers are answering, asking, and those are the types of questions that we're trying to answer. And I think some of the uh, operations are just getting so large that it's it's difficult to be timely. Maybe timely when you start, but by the time you finish, and then you get back to what you started, you know, that first application, some of those weeds that may be you know, emerge the day after application, it may be difficult to be timely on that second flush or that third flush. So I think just some of the size of the operations today are also making it very difficult to do some of the things that we know we need to be doing, and that's uh, timely applications. With no-till and minimum tillage becoming even more common, and with soil health kind of being the buzzword in farming right now, how can you balance chemical farming and make sure that more herbicide-resistant weeds aren't being created. So I, I, I feel like we, we spend a lot of time in our individual disciplines. So, so, so those that seem to be most focused maybe solely on soil health tend to see the, the great benefits of, of not tilling. As a manager of weeds... I think tillage is, is a very important tool. Not that we need to be tilling every acre, and not that 
we need to be tilling every year. But but certainly tillage will help break up some of the pest associations with the crops that we grow. Once in a while, breaking up that association with tillage, I think, can be very beneficial. Typically, when we till less, we rely more on herbicides because now we, we're not starting clean by tilling. We're starting clean by some other means, and that means maybe by use of herbicides. So if we're tilling less and we're applying more, then that's just another opportunity to be selecting for those weeds that are either more tolerant or, or perhaps resistant. And if we tend to continue to not till and we continue to rely on those herbicides, then we're creating the selection pressure to select for that one in a million or one in a billion that might be different. That plant survives, it produces seed, and we've gone from well, one plant to now maybe a small patch to, to a bigger patch to, to perhaps the whole field. So, so, so the answer may not be let's till every year, and the answer may not be let's go completely no-till and just rely on herbicides. The answer may be somewhere in the middle. And again, not for every farm and every grower, but, but there, there certainly is an opportunity in some instances to, to till to try to break up some of those associations. Uh, another question that sometimes I'm asked is, you know, what is, what is tillage doing to the weed seeds? Well, if I've got a bunch of resistant weeds that, that have been recently developed that are sitting on the surface, tillage may give me one opportunity to, to kind of put them deep and, and almost start that clock back uh, with, with a fresh start. Now, if we continue to maybe over-rely on herbicides, then we may continuously select, and now I've got not only resistant weeds deep, but resistant weeds shallow, so, so I didn't really accomplish anything. But if I can, can somehow change the inputs or the management strategies, deep breaking may bury those seeds, and now I'm going to try to adopt more of a of a mentality of no seed is going to be allowed to grow and produce more seed. Uh, so I'm working more on that soil seed bank kind of model. Uh, that may give me an opportunity to kind of start fresh because those deep buried seeds aren't going to be causing any problems. And what we're learning uh, in some studies that we've done recently at burying seeds, some of the viability of Palmer amaranth seed isn't very long. We're seeing a significant decrease in the life of the seed within the first three or four years. So with headlines about herbicides seeming to pop up just about every day, but with people not really understanding what the science is behind them, could you talk about what role selectivity plays in herbicides like glyphosate and 2,4-D, and how to explain that to people? So, so to, to continue specifically with those two herbicides, glyphosate and 2,4-D, I guess kind of two things I'd like to mention. Number one, oftentimes I think folk, folks think of herbicides as kind of a mysterious black box, not not exactly sure what they're doing, but knowing the end result is, you know, the death of the weed. When, in fact, we know quite a bit about that internal black box. We know a lot about what the herbicides are doing. Uh, after application, the uptake, the translocation, where they go, and then what they do at the site of action. Herbicides have a very specific job that they do, a very specific protein or enzyme that they inhibit that, that causes death. 
uh, so 240 and, and, and Roundup to do two very different things. Uh, Roundup is, is essentially considered non-selective. It's going to control most all herbaceous plants or weeds. 240 is, is much more selective on, on broadleaf weeds. Now, can 2,4-D hurt a grassy plant? Ab- absolutely. The, the, the basis for selectivity, and selectivity is a term I really like to talk about in class in particular, you know, what is the selectivity? How, how can we use a herbicide to kill some plants but not kill others? Well, that's, that's the selectivity. So what is the basis? What is that mysterious black box behind the selectivity? Sometimes the selectivity is, is very pure. It's very easy to understand. It may be a specific protein that the weed has that the crop doesn't. So you apply it, and it's going to go to the weed and kill it, and the crop doesn't have it, so, so it doesn't affect it. Sometimes the selectivity is based on metabolism, where one of those types of plants has the ability to modify the structure. That's kind of what metabolism refers to. It's whatever that molecule looks like, if the plant can do something to the molecule, if it can add something to it or remove something from it, then it's no longer a herbicide. So selectivity could be based on metabolism. If the weed does it slowly and the crop metabolizes quickly, then the pool of herbicide is going to be greater in the weed, hence the activity is on the weed. With 2,4-D, the selectivity, there's about five factors that are involved. And none of those factors by itself is good enough, but the five factors together essentially allow us to use a herbicide like 2,4-D in our Bermuda grass lawn or in a wheat field or in a corn field or sorghum field or other, other grassy crop. Now, if the applicator makes a mistake and the rate is too high, then that may kind of overwhelm the selectivity, and hence we can see damage in our grassy crops even from 2,4-D. If the selectivity is based on a site of action or on metabolism, then maybe, maybe that rate, if off a little bit, is still enough where that selectivity is, is pretty good to where it'll, it'll work on the weed and not on the crop. Could you give an overview of herbicide toxicity and how it can vary from herbicide to herbicide? Herbicides are classified based on their uh, toxicity. It's a scale of, of 1 to 4, uh, LD50 values. Oftentimes we just see signal words on, on labels, uh, anywhere from the least toxic, which would have a caution, to those that are most toxic, the skull and crossbones. Uh, most all herbicides that we use today are in the, the, the lowest categories, category three, category four, which contain that caution signal word. And that's because what they're doing in weeds, the enzymes and proteins that they might be inhibiting are quite unique to the weed and not so much to the mammalian system or the applicator that could be exposed. There are a few herbicides, and, and I think there are other pesticides, probably more insecticides or rodenticides, where some of those might be a little bit more similar uh, as far as what they do and the pests that they're controlling to maybe the, the internal mechanisms of, of, of you know, the applicator. What advice do you have for young people who either want to continue learning or start learning about agronomy? I'll try to answer it in this way. Okay. I would say though, those that are already involved in agriculture that maybe grew up on a farm and, and they've been exposed to 
family members or, or parents farming, uh, I think when they come to tech, they need to have an open mind uh, and they need to uh, challenge themselves with, with kind of a little different way of thinking, maybe in a new way of thinking. Because if, 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 they're, if they're not going to be open-minded, then I'm not sure what their four years at tech is really going to provide. I've had a few students tell me, you know, my dad doesn't do it that way or my dad couldn't pass the class. Well, really, that's kind of a compliment because if they could, then maybe the, the student has already learned everything that they can learn. So, so the practical side of what they know is, is, is a wonderful start. Uh, but maybe to take some of those things that they know and to try to better understand how the plant is growing and developing and how weeds develop associations with crops and, and various attributes of other pests or soils or irrigation, all of these things that are a part of the system, I think if they come in with an open mind and try to learn as much as they can, now they've got just that many more tools that they can use and draw from as they go back to the farm and, and maybe try to continue to, to manage that product, production system, now using some different tools than maybe their parents had uh, when they were farming. Uh, I would encourage them to have a passion for what they're doing because... Uh, I mean, farming is, is, is a difficult profession. Working for industry, that's a difficult profession. As a crop consultant, as a university extension or a professor in college, those are all difficult professions. And it's nice to have a paying job, but I think the day would go a lot slower and be, would be much more painful if we didn't like what we were doing. So the sooner we can find out where that passion is and to actually focus on a career where that passion is, I think makes getting up in the morning and, and working hard all day and, and you know every day essentially of the week uh, much less painful. And that's it for this week. Thank you so much for listening, and please check back again later this month for another episode about the people of the Plains. I don't know the answers. 